when people are vulnerable, they over interpret the don't do this messages. So when you look at spine sparing strategies from BackFit Pro, of course, mechanically they're right, but how much does mechanics really influence pain? It turns out self-efficacy influences pain a heck of a lot more than mechanics does. Mechanics is important, but maybe not as important as the social or the psycho. Maybe at the end of the day, the social, the trust and confidence bridges the gap between the bio and the psycho. You're listening to Muscle Medicine, where we debunk the myths in the health and wellness world to bring you the latest updates in exercise, rehab, and nutrition from industry leaders. Join your host, Dr. Emily Kybert, chiropractor and movement expert, as she brings you simple, actionable tips to reach your fullest potential. Liebensister, excited to sit down with you. I've been to research, read so much of your stuff over the years. Previous editions of Rehabilitation of the Spine, I've like, they are all marked up, highlighted notes, everything. So I'm excited to have you on Muscle Medicine Podcast. Wow, thanks for inviting me. It's an honor. Yeah. I've been thinking about this quote, and this is from Gray Cook, is first move well and then move often. And I'm curious for you, who someone who looks at movement all day long, has lots of different systems, what does moving well mean to you? Oh, God, that's a great question. <laughs> right off the bat, Emily. <laughs> so we dive right in, you know, like, uh, that would <laughs> no holds barred. That, Emily, that would be such an easy question if you asked it at any time from, I'd say, 1985 until about six months ago. And right now, there's a, an awareness that I have. I've, I've grown to really appreciate how important the social aspects are even more than the bio and the psycho. So I've always taken a biopsychosocial approach. And I always thought social was something that you know was important, but wasn't interesting per se. And I realize now how blind I've been because I actually did have the information before, for instance, in elderly people with osteoarthritis of the knee, that spousal support was the number one determinant of function. So does move well really matter as much as I learned from Professor Yonda or I taught or Gray Cook teaches? I would say that it doesn't matter as much as the social determinants of health. I would say that before when I thought, oh, wow, I'm better than an MRI and I can find dysfunction. And like Gray Cook says, it's not about impairments, like isolated tests of range of motion or strength. It's about patterns. It's not about parts. I would have been lock, stock and barrel with all of that. But I've remembered in the last six months that Professor Yonda didn't do any cortical training there was very little voluntary muscle exercise. He stimulated the sole of the foot and trained balance, which is subcortical, and he gamified exercise with jumping and squatting and lunging. And this is very much how coaches train skill acquisition. It's very much like Feldenkrais. And Yonda was influenced by Feldenkrais, even though he didn't talk about it a lot. 
And so when we think of coaches, coaches guide by the side. They create constraints. They create the environment, the social environment. They want to create constraints that isolate out the faulty movements. So we're interested in the movements. We assess, 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 and which allow the person to problem solve on their own so it stashes in the subconscious and allows them to become more agile in chaos, which is the real world. So I don't correct anymore. I still assess, but I don't correct. I create an environment where a person can problem solve on their own. Like Charlie Weingroff said, uh, correctives are like napkins. You clean up a mess and you throw them away. And I'm <laughs> guilty of training people to overcorrect. I think it makes people fragile. So, so it's a really hard question for me to answer. It's a freaking really good question, Emily. <laughs> So how as practitioners who may be more in the like give correctives, get them moving well, maybe kind of miss the move often, how can we support people in that social aspect in this yeah, by, biopsychosocial? By trust. So it's motivational interviewing 101. First visit, like Professor McGill does, a very deep dive on a person's concerns, goals, past history. Can't do it in 15 minutes. I don't care how magical you are. I don't care how great, great at seeing you are, your, all your fix-it things. And it's good to have that, that craft and that ability. It's great. But as Mike Boyle says, they don't care how much you know till they know how much you care. So we create an environment where we listen. That's the first part of the social is, is being still, letting them tell their story. We can even start, as Peter O'Sullivan says, and ask, so tell me your story. And then in motivational interviewing, we learn to reflect. So when they've told their story, then we can repeat back the salient features through our filter, through our experience, through our knowledge, through the science and the evidence to seek confirmation so that they validate that we heard them. And now we're being empathetic because they know that we know what they're really chasing, what their concerns, fears, worries, yellow flags are, goals etc. Are. Yeah. are there other social components outside of maybe what happens in like a one-to-one session, like living in a city that's walkable, being able to bike, being access to nature? Yeah. I mean, those are, those are technically, you just hit the checklist of social, some of the social determinants of health. So we see that rich and poor people all over the world are all sedentary. And granted, New York City or Tokyo, there's clandestine activity because of walking. You've got Central Park in New York. If you have green spaces, that's invaluable. If you have bike paths, that's invaluable. Generally speaking, poor people move more than rich people because poor people don't drive cars and don't sit at desks. But of all the activities, the one activity that is the least likely to uh, grease the gears and mobilize tissues, it would be housework. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> so, so, so that sort of activity doesn't really seem to help, but almost every other activity does. So, so yeah, access to all of that stuff, it's a, it's a public health mandate. And a lot of people now are calling from the World Health Organization through the CDC and the American College of Sports Medicine and American Heart Association on down for medical physicians to get behind the movement, the movement as medicine approach not the exercise as medicine approach. So ex- exercise as medicine was a prescription. And prescription comes from disease. So the medical paradigm 
if we don't take a biopsychosocial approach, if we take a bio approach or a biomedical approach, we think like, oh, there's a pathology and there's a prescription. But the environmental or social construct tells us that it's patient-centered and we have to know their environment and their context. The context is king. So that's, that flips the script. It's no longer about doctor-centered, pathology-based prescriptions. It's about your environment, your social situation, your social determinants, what you've been told psychologically that clouds everything and makes you a fragilista. You could have been told you have degenerative spine, deteriorating spine, torn labrum, not told about false positives. You could have been told that if it doesn't get better, you need surgery or you should try PRP or stem cells. Or you could have been told you're out of alignment or have muscle imbalances or a tight QL or weak glutes. And all those things can, can create a feeling that you need something outside of yourself. So the ultimate social constraint is the tyranny of the visit. Daniel Lord, a friend of mine who hosted me in, in the San Francisco area and now has Crossover Health, which has an outpost in New York City. They work with Facebook and other big companies. He, he's recognizing that it's not just about good manual therapy and rehab for musculoskeletal health, that the, the clinic or visit itself, because of the social contract, people come in expecting you to fix them. But you don't go see a trainer and expect to be stronger in one visit. And if the real movement problem, like you said, how do we know if we're moving well so we can move off? And if the real movement problem is something that requires confidence and self-efficacy and independent functioning rather than somebody fixing you or guiding you, then in the clinic setting, we're hamstrung. So I'm shocking myself again. I never would have thought I'd be a fan of online coaching or e-medicine. But now I realize that in a concierge e-health approach, we may actually be able to steer people towards, towards things that they weren't expecting in a face-to-face, -face, but which are actually more constructive. I can't believe it, I said <laughs> it. Doesn't make it, it wouldn't have made any sense to me. Before. The online piece? Yeah. I mean, I, I was really um, thinking online coaching was one of the worst things in the world. How can they maintain quality? How can they assure that you're moving well? And if you don't move well and then you move off and it's going to get worse, let alone if you then progress to the next stage, which is after you, you've added volume, now you add intensity, you add load. So, you know, you're describing my principles. The, the, the second principle is about the quality of movement, move well and, and add volume to mo the motion is the lotion. And the third principle is you have to load it. Don't manage people away from load. But the first principle is reassurance. And the tyranny of the clinic tells us that the environment of the interaction drives people to want things that aren't necessarily good for them. And there's people that have opened my eyes about the power of the separation, feeding people an infographic or something and getting them started and reassuring them. Where was the mindset shift in approaching patients, you know, how you started to now? Was it you know, in this last six months, was it techniques or scientific literature that came out? What was it that created a shift? Well, I've been gamifying exercise and using less internal cues and manual handling, like you see in DNS a lot of, and McGill, Professor Stuart McGill puts his hands on people and shapes the pelvis. I've known for a long time about gamification and that coaches guide by the side. I did a deep dive for my functional training handbook on skill acquisition. And I learned that 
motor control is not the ticket. Motor learning is. And motor learning occurs when you create an environment. That's dynamic systems theory. So in dynamic systems theory, it's constraints-based education. It's what Feldenkrais taught. It's, it's incorrect to correct is what Feldenkrais said. And John Wooden, the UCLA basketball legendary coach, he said, don't give correction if it causes resentment. Mm. And how often do we not find ourselves on that downward spiral where you think you know how to teach the single leg RDL to somebody to get their glute firing and, and they're not feeling their glute and their valgus in their knee and and, or they're doing, you're, you peel back, you regress to a, a glute bridge and, you, and, and they just say, I feel my back, you know, and now you're wanting to, you know, teach them to brace, but that's an internal cue or, you know, you may even find yourself doing things that you didn't want to do, like posterior pelvic tilting or something that you threw in the trash can. But we have to let people play in the mud, something Greg Glassman understands who founded CrossFit. And we can criticize CrossFit because they have poor quality control. And they load people too soon and they combine volume and intensity uh, and all these things. But he didn't say that everybody needed to do things one way at CrossFit. He, he gives people freedom. He's very much you know, like an anarchist that way. But his principles, he said that the way to learn is by playing in the mud. And so when Gray laid out his scoring for FMS, he was a genius because zero is unacceptable pain and one is unacceptable function and two is acceptable compensation and three is pristine and if you're training your deadlifts for a powerlifting competition you better have a three because you're going to go into that meet and pr it's not going to be a three when you pr uh, to win you're going to have to pr but you don't want to train at that level of intensity with with anything up short of perfection a golfer has to hit it on the screws every time in practice, but in competition, again, they may have a rough fly, a lot of stress. It's going to be the person who misses best, who actually wins the tournament. In training people who aren't elite, if we're expecting threes, that's a big mistake. So what we teach is to identify what you said, what's the lack of moving, moving well, the absence of it. So we teach how to find the ones and, and to mark the pain, the zeros. And then we reassure people and then we let them play in the mud and we choose those things that are, that are twos. And I'm transcribing Gray's thing. It's, it's a principle. It's not just seven tests. Every exercise is a test. So everything can be looked at through that, that filter. And I don't want to keep correcting. I, I want to find the low-hanging fruit. If the tide rises, all the boats rise. So where can I get the most from the least? It's by finding the silent killers that are upstream which are A, social, and then B, in the bio category, it is going to be those faulty movements. So you can't squat well, you stoop, you don't even know what a hinge is. When you pull, you shrug and poke your chin. When you push or press, you shrug and round your shoulders. When you carry, you again shrug and hold your breath. When you drop into triple flexion, uh, you lack ankle and hip mobility. When you try to go into triple extension, you get an open scissor or lower cross syndrome and an anterior pelvic tilt. Of course, we're never going to throw any of those things away. But I'm probably going to train people like Pavel Satsalin, not like DNS or Professor McGill. In his first video, he blew my mind when I saw this. He's within 10 minutes, he's, it's the video Enter the Kettlebell. So he's teaching a squat. And then 
instead of giving lots of coaching cues, he said, if somebody's not squatting well, move them against the wall. The wall shall be your coach. And we know if you're facing the wall, it, it automatically takes out the slouch, slump, and stoop, which is the number one motor control error we would see. And so he wasn't trying to say, oh, don't round your back or brace your spine. He just used the environment. It was a social thing. So he was guiding by the side and letting the person figure it out on their own. Like if you're going to think of the general population that needs to move more and move the needle in their lives regarding, I want to say pain prevention, but that's not really the goal. But like if there was three things that the general population could do to kind of move the needle if they are experiencing pain, what, what would be like the first top of mind? Find you. <laughs> they need an ambassador. They need hope. They need tangible hope and an achievable plan. They need a port of call, 100%. Somebody who's empathetic who will listen to their story um, and will guide them because there's so many vested interests. that the, They see a, an MD. MD is going to do an x-ray, tell them they have pathology, uh, tell them uh, to avoid things that hurt, that every hurt equals harm. If they need extra help with pain, it's going to give them pain relievers, which is the cascading slippery slope to opiates. And then if it doesn't get better, they're going to up, upload now the need for an MRI. Now they're going to see the, the, the surgeon who's then going to say when they're fed up, he can fix it. A, nobody's told them about the false positive imaging, no science. Nobody's told them that conservative care is as effective as the interventions. Nobody's told them uh, that if you even just do NSAIDs, that it raises your risk of heart disease in the future by, by 30 to 45%. Nobody has told them that it is safe to exercise with some pain. And using, a, let's say, a simple traffic light metaphor, where, where zero to two is just, just don't even worry about it. And three to six is like a yellow light. You know, it's not green, but it's, it's yellow. It's, you know, it's alarm. Hurt is an alarm, but hurt doesn't mean harm. Hurt doesn't equal harm. And so probably we're going to look both ways and cross if it's yellow, unless it's like a shin splint or uh, something like uh, a deep bone bruise. You know, it is tissue specific in that case. And if it's eight out of 10 uh, or nine out of 10 or 10, it's red light. Stop. We'll do something else. We'll find the path of least resistance. So they need to find you so you'll listen to them so that you'll give them a proper coaching and you'll guide by the side and, and reassure them and follow the science, which is reassurance and reactivation. Most people are trying to fix it if they're the so-called good guys. Like we have a monster ego about the fact that we're not the MD ortho. We're not pathologizing, but, but Peter O'Sullivan is telling us that we are, that we are making people feel sick because they're coming in to me and they're saying, oh, I have a tight QL. I have a psoas and spasm. Uh, my back is out. And who gave them that idea? I did. I gave them that idea. I've been training people in corrective exercises in finding dysfunctions, to your point about move well and move often. So obviously we have to identify what's not moving well. The mud is okay. Yeah, technical proficiency is important at the higher intensities. At the lower intensities... I'm not so convinced that the pros outweigh the cons of 
when people are vulnerable, they over interpret the don't do this messages. So when you look at spine sparing strategies from BackFit Pro, of course, mechanically they're right, but how much does mechanics really influence pain? It turns out self-efficacy influences pain a heck of a lot more than mechanics does. Mechanics is important, but maybe not as important as the social or the psycho. Maybe at the end of the day, the social, the trust and confidence bridges the gap between the bio and the psycho. Mm. Going back to Pavel, I was just listening to him on Joe Rogan's podcast, and he <laughs> said, do your correctives somewhere else. Don't bring them to the floor. And I was like, oh, did he just say that? <laughs> I got in trouble. I got in trouble for sharing his quote about correctives. Because he said in Easy Strength, his book with Dan John, that people are scanning their carcass for every ache and pain and foam rolling and doing sissy exercises before they ever train with any serious, serious load. And I guess you, in spite of sissy being used for the squat, saying that is kind of taboo or, or pejorative. And I wasn't saying it, but, <laughs> but I like his quote. I mean, his quote is very impactful. And I'm glad to hear he said that. I heard the beginning of that podcast where he talked about how he didn't think kettlebells would, would thrive in the United States. And Marty Gallagher, who trains Navy SEALs and was helping him write a lot of his books for Dragon Door, a great powerlifting coach, powerlifting coach at Ed Cohen. And he comes to a lot of my courses and shares his wisdom. Um, Marty uh, convinced him that uh, he should go for it and, and said it's going to work. Do you think part of the social aspect is as a society, we become a little soft. Like it's easy to get our food. We can get food, you know, any hour of the day. We don't really have to like struggle in like a physical aspect for things. I don't know. I mean, we live under tremendous stress. Yeah, we're, we're, we're soft, but um, you have people that are doing too much too soon. And then you have people doing too little too late. Rather than thinking of us as soft, which may be accurate, um, I just think in terms of what Yonda, Yonda taught me, which was that we live in a sedentary society. And Daniel Lieberman from Harvard, the evolutionary biologist and one of the first you know, people to advocate barefoot walking, he wrote the book, The Story of the Human Body. And he said the double whammy of eating too much processed foods and calories and moving too little is behind most of the non-communicable diseases of today, from, from heart disease and cancer to osteoarthritis and musculoskeletal back pain and mental health issues and myopia and fallen arches and falls in the elderly, frailty, osteoporosis, you name it. All those NCDs are a direct result of modern lifestyle. And I think when you say, what are the three things that we can try to improve our messaging on? If I go back to the other question and tie that in, I like the way you're teeing it up because I don't know that I have three things, but I think The Gift of Injury, the title of Professor McGill's, one of his newer books with Brian Carroll, is one of the things I want people that are seeing me, usually because they have pain, to realize that prognosis is, is fantastic. I want to reassure them. So I have to do a lot of deprogramming and de-implementation. So reassurance is definitely the number one thing from the science, and it's in my art, and it's in what I teach. And part of that reassurance is explaining to people, you know, there's even a silver lining here because we're going to now work on stuff that's upstream that would increase the likelihood of heart disease and cancer even 
I mean, the, I didn't know this stuff before. I wasn't talking about this before. I was, I was doing a deep dive, looking for all their dysfunctions and then correcting them. And now I realize that I'm a health span expert. And people are living longer. So, so since they're living longer and we have a crappy lifestyle, not only is the extra years not quality, but because of our crappy lifestyle, at 50, we're older, younger. At 50, we're sicker today than we were before sedentarism. And we now have, have comparison of x-rays of people who were 50 in 1930 and 50 today. There's more arthritis today. We have actually bones from the industrial period. The bones haven't gone away. And, and this is published in the journal Science. Bones from the industrial period have less arthritis. That was a hard life. So you're saying, are we soft? Yeah, we are effing sauce, soft. Bones from the industrial period have less arthritis than today. So is the message, oh, you have wear and tear. Not the most screwed up, diabolical message. And if we look at fossils <laughs> from before agriculture, before food became processed when the husk came off of the seed, uh, before we stopped being hunters and gatherers, so we're going back 30, 40, 50, 60,000 years ago and longer because the fossils can be 7 million years before Homo sapien. Less arthritis in 50-year-olds. I would say that a 50-year-old woman 9 million years ago so this is not an ape. This is a uh, hominoid. Global cooling, not enough fruit in the trees. The bifurcation or trifurcation, chimp and gorilla one way, hominoid the other way. We became bipedal and unipedal. We got springy arches. Our pelvis shifted from facing forward, so we were waddling like an ape, to facing sideways. We grew a glute media so that we could stand on one leg and not sprain our ankle, which would have ended the experiment. We developed a nuchal line to hold that whole posterior fascial sling so that we could lean forward and jog. These changes made it so that a 50-year-old woman, because that's who was doing the gathering, with a 13- and 14-year-old girl, wasn't the dudes wasn't the, the women of childbearing age who were like 18 to let's say 40. That 50-year-old woman, she didn't have osteoporosis. She didn't have osteoarthritis of her hip or her knee. She had great muscles. Her heart was stronger. And look at us today. We're living longer, but we're not living better. So the three things, reassurance, gift of injury, the silver lining, we're going to get upstream of all these NCDs, number one. Number two is, therefore, the motion is a lotion, and I don't want to police perfection. And number three would be load is the best corrective. Load is and the best three, corrective. There's many roads to Rome. Learn DNS and BackFit Pro. On that note, what, what's your thoughts on having multiple tools in your tool belt, right? This option, optionality of treatment right? Because I think maybe for people who are coming out of school or neuropractitioners, they want to kind of master something which takes time and takes commitment and dedication, yet you don't necessarily want to only go down that rabbit hole and have one offering and present that offering as 
the golden key that's going to unlock that pain lock, you know? Damn. That, that, I love that question. So Harvard Business Journal did a thing on generalist versus specialist, da Vinci being the main icon of generalist. And there's a lot of things today about like millennials and how to prepare for the job market if you didn't do a STEM degree, let's say. Like, like what's the role of like liberal arts, et cetera. And in training, you know, should you be a one-trick pony? Uh, Pavel says uh, better to go an inch wide and a mile deep. And I think for the novice, it cuts both ways. So the novice needs something. Like they need a cookbook. So it's really good to do FMS and do FMS one and two and learn how to assess movement, get the algorithm, move well, move often, and then learn the correctives. Now you're able to do the screen on people, shift them away from the pathology model of structure to a slightly better pathology model of function. But in my mind, that's not enough, but that's still a good start. Now at least you have a foothold, doing better than people peddling drugs and stem cells and PRP and surgery. Do you think stem cells and PRP have a place? Probably, but the jury is out. There's a lot of hype and overclaim, like for cryo chambers and so many other things, K-tape, foam rolling. A lot of things aren't really, you know, as important as load, <laughs> slow cook load. But 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 I think... The generalist specialist thing can also be looked at it as parallel to youth specialization. So we now realize that youth are not going to fare well if they specialize too young. That you yes. want you want um, a broad base in athletic literacies, which teaches problem solving and strategic thinking, avoids burnout. And if you're not in an early specialization sport like figure skating or tennis the benefits definitely do not outweigh the risk. So if you're playing baseball or football or basketball, no question. And I think if we think of a young, young chiropractor or physical therapist or coach, I think while Pavel is right to learn kettlebell, you've got to really dive deep and pass your belt test. I think you need to have a really open mind while you're gaining that one thing that becomes your calling card in your first couple of years. So I get the specialty thing, but you need to have an open mind and realize that you're going to pivot as soon as possible towards optionality because not everybody needs a kettlebell, not everybody needs a barbell, not everybody needs primal move and groundwork, and not everybody needs cavitations or soft tissue work. Some people, it's a nutrition problem. Some people, it's, it's, it's a confidence issue. Some people, it's a strength issue. So Talib talked about this in financial investments. And drew the parallel to healthcare that it's best to have maximum optionality because you don't know what's going to work. And you want to have maximum optionality in a lot of things that have little downside risk. And he calls it an asymmetrical barbell. Then you, you asymmetrically load up with a very small set of your offerings in something that has higher risk. And that's the best pathway for success variability is the oil of the central nervous system. So I'm doing groundwork and looking at the feet, and then I'm doing things that look at the control of the torso, and then I'm doing things for mobility, and uh, we're getting people's heart rate up. I have to see if they're unfit. If they're unfit, the mobility doesn't really matter. If they can't pass the talk test after they beast crawl for 10 seconds, if they can't hold a high plank, what do I care about their mobility? If I don't build their mitochondrial density like a good coach, first in the first block of training then they're prone to chronic pain because they can't recover from any training i give them so i want to just think like a scientist and act like a coach nothing in it's there where, is about 
about the clinician. Yeah. The best As clinician looks like a scientist and acts like a coach, which is a quote from Carmen Bott. It's wearing a lot of hats though, right? Yeah. <laughs> well, you got to know why you're doing what you're doing. That's the science. So hopefully yeah. everybody is, is, is a learn it all and not just into, not just a slave of methods. They're learning why they're learning all the evidence and then you develop craft, you develop skill, and you got to start somewhere. So it's good to specialize and become good at the kettlebell and good at the FMS, let's say, good at DNS or good at BackFit Pro. But then keep an open mind, be humble, because we, live, we exist in chaos. As a patient told me this, this week, an Indian gentleman, an actor, and he came in and he said, he thinks of things as existing in chaos. And and that's true for soccer teams. It's true for our chronic pain patients. There's so much information overload on the internet for all our young chiros and PTs and coaches. They don't know what to do, where to go. So I just give a compass. I give a GPS to think more agilely so that you can be as precise and patient-centered as possible. So we have scalable principles. There are very few. Methods are many. If you know the principles, you can choose any method. But but I see the conundrum where you got to start with like one method at a time. Mm-hmm. Chiropractor, learn how to adjust. Physical therapist, learn how to give corrective exercises, I guess. But, but I, I think the models maybe are askew. Maybe neither of those things are as important as we thought. Yeah. I'm curious from a private practice perspective, working with people who demonstrate hypermobility, because I think maybe newer grads who, especially chiros who just want to get the cavitation and maybe are starting to dapple in correctives, could be doing a disservice to people who potentially may be hypermobile. For us, we see a lot of autoimmune patients who present, even though it's not, you know, the research isn't out there on hypermobility with autoimmune, but there is like a tissue change. I was just wondering if anything changes when you work with those I probably would agree with you. When you see somebody is has constitutional hypermobility, and there's there's tests for that, uh, it's a thing. Obviously, you're going to treat them differently. I'm going to focus more on stability, co-contractions. I'm going to look at how they land. I'm going to mm. see how they stiffen their ankle. So we're going to skip. We're going to jump rope. Uh, a lot of times, it's females. And so did you play hopscotch? Did you jump rope as, as a young girl? Most will say yes, except 20 years from now, most are going to say no, because you don't see chalk on sidewalks anymore. And as you know, Michelle Obama got shot down by the American Dairy Council because her thing was childhood obesity. And because of the pressure on young girls, the childhood obesity problem is particularly devastating for females. And that was her mission. And we see that by 2030, it is expected, uh, according to the World Health Organization, that one half of the Earth's population will be obese. The United States is number two in the world in obesity behind only Mexico. So this is a huge issue. We We have adult onset diabetes in children, okay? Think of the name, adult onset diabetes. It means it didn't exist before. So we're screwing around with some bad stuff. In Australia, to your point before about social, they figured out the number one way to address childhood obesity is a sugar tax. 
So a lot of these things are public health down, but we all have to be partners. This is a big thing. And it, it, the opportunity, the gift of injury is when they come in and see us. So if they've got hypermobility, that's different than if they're super stiff. If they're really coordinated and they do Pilates, I probably want to welcome them to the world of strength. If they're bodybuilders, I probably want to welcome them to the move world of groundwork or Pilates. If they're yoginis, I probably want to get them doing kettlebells. People like that are flexible tend to, to gravitate to yoga because of ego. And everybody wants to have a positive experience with movement, but maybe we need to get comfortable, like Greg Glassman said, in the mud with being a learn-it-all and work on our low-hanging fruit. So one of the things that Ryan Chow does really well at Reload in Manhattan is he's taken my, my teaching about finding the low-hanging fruit, which is what Gray Cook teaches too. And it's your first question about, you know, first find what they don't do well and then teach them to move well and then do it often. We want to find the floor, whatever the floor is. If it's hypermobility, if it's lack of stiffness in the ankle, you don't land well, you don't spring well. If it's lack of coordination of your, your ribs against your pelvis, if you have faulty breathing, whatever is your low-hanging fruit. That's where we start. And so we have to explain to people that why it is they're only as strong as their weakest link and how that low-hanging fruit is related to their symptoms. So maybe it's their hypermobility, their hyperpronation in their foot, their lack of stiffness in their ankle that's driving their knee pain or their hip pain or their back pain. And I want to be able to spend the time to make it clear to somebody that that foot is the upstream driver, not their x-ray. And that I don't need to rub their, their, their piriformis and QL. And I don't need to give them clamshells. I don't even need to activate their glutes. I need to teach them how to pogo hop as an example. Because they don't have ankle stiffness. So my ability to do what Mike Boyle says, teach people why the fundamentals are the fundamentals. It's not sports specific. It's not injury specific. It's not tissue specific. It's about the foundational movement literacies. And, and when people are with Mike Boyle, their parents and their kids are training and they wonder why is the hockey kid and the lacrosse kid and the tennis kid and the sprinter all doing the same stuff. So Mike's trainers all have to be able to explain why fundamentals are important. Yeah. I'm going to ask you some maybe more like rapid fire questions. <laughs> Go for it. How did you come up with the name First Principles of Movement? A colleague of yours in Manhattan, yeah. Jasmine Kwan. Ah, yeah. Was attending Jasmine. my courses. A wonderful home care based physical therapist. Just had her first baby. And she had taken my course in New York and then traveled to DC. And she was like you, asking all these great questions and really sincere and a deep thinker. And she said, you know, what you're doing is giving us the first principles. And so I did a deep dive. It turns out it's something that Elon Musk had, had talked about after he dropped out of Stanford uh, and stopped his study of physics. And it comes from Aristotle. And it's, you divide things down to the basic elements, kind of like Dan John and, and, and John Rusin and Paul Check did with movements. And they came up with squat, lunge, hinge, push, pull, carry. Or Dan Baker, one of the greatest coaches in the world out of Australia, you throw in uh, rotation. Uh, Nicole Rodriguez talks about triple flexion, triple extension, rotation. Uh, whatever your version of the most basic forms of movement, 
or health. And so first principles is about that. Nice. Do you have clinicians, coaches, scientists that you learn from right now that you're really resonating with? Sure. I mentioned Talib, but one of my big sources of inspiration uh, is always uh, Stuart McMillan out of Al philosopher of sprinting and uh, me at Exos and this person who really helped me understand dynamic systems theory uh, better and anything in the world of uncertainty. So uh, Chris Littlewood, who's a PT PhD, talks about uh, the need for people, especially clinicians, to be a little less sure of accepting the dogma of the past about labels. Like he's a shoulder guy and he says the, the painful arc isn't really validated. Impingement isn't validated. What we know is, is like in the low back, we have nonspecific shoulder pain and telling people they have impingement less, tells them that the answer is mechanical when it probably isn't. Uh, they probably need more adaptation and people that are talking about adaptation, like Greg Lehman, the movement agnostic Greg Lehman really influenced me because I can see from his work in Peter O'Sullivan's, what most people need is not to feel that something is wrong. What most people need is to realize that the way to become more resilient is to slightly stress the structures gradually so they adapt. So the model of adaptation is different than the mechanics model of, of fixing and controlling. And so that whole world of creating adaptation. Tyson Beach is a, a biomechanist in Toronto. I consider him the, the number one thinker in the world of biomechanics and kinesiology. So I follow Tyson Beach very, very, very closely. So those are a couple of the people. Nice. When people are coming to you and they want, like maybe they feel like they've been told by multiple doctors that nothing's wrong with them, right? And we're not trying to focus necessarily on like the diagnosis, but yet sometimes that can create ease to know that there's something, how do you create that balance? God, that is the best question I've ever been asked. <laughs> I love that because that's the whole reason, reason for BackFit Pro, the dissatisfaction with the nonspecific diagnosis. And Professor McGill, McGill will say, those bastards, those damn bastards, those <laughs> doctors who tell you you have nonspecific pain, that, that, that there's nothing causing your pain. But that's not what they're saying. So when you really understand Greg Lehman and Peter O'Sullivan and Lorimer Mosley, Mosley says the tissue isn't the issue. He's saying that the output, and National Geographic just did the best piece on this that everybody should see. It's, it's just out this week, and I've shared it already. But in that geo, they, they talk about how, how the brain is an amplifier, and the receiver of that nociceptive information conducts it and amplifies it or mutes it. And so your state of mind has everything to do with what you feel. So, so the hurt you feel becomes the feeling you hurt. And the secret is in reassuring people and reactivating them. So the science got it right back in the 80s. The question is, how do we do that? And to your point, you can't tell people the problem is in their head. That's not what Peter O'Sullivan does. Peter O'Sullivan says, tell me your story. That's how we started today, talking about that. And he develops that relationship. And then when you hear their story, you see they're tightly wound or they have these stresses. And then you can understand why certain pains maybe didn't resolve and how the hurt they feel became the feeling they hurt. So, so now we flip the script to an actionable approach. And what are we going to do? We're going to explain how it is that, to your first question, why not moving well is the beachhead, the beginning point. 
So we want to find that, that, hey, you're doing squats all day long in and out of a chair, carrying things, lifting things, bending. And um, we want to make it more robust. We don't want to fix your squat. We want to make it more robust. So we don't have to correct the squat. We have to, to, to load the squat. That will help people adapt physically and psychologically. So we give them the social permission to squat against a wall, Pavel Satsaline 101. And they'll have trouble. They'll struggle, and that's good. They'll go down, and then they'll lose their balance, and we'll say, you don't have to go deep. Then I have them hold on to the TRX or the door handle. Now they can go ass to grass. And they do that, and they go, my God, it feels good. And I take a picture, and they see that at first they were rounding, and now they're tall. But I never said anything about stick out your chest or shoulders back or brace or anything. And I know this is the rapid fire part. <laughs> but <laughs> that's but okay. I think that that's the biggest question of all right now is, is just because science says it's nonspecific doesn't mean there's no cause. There's tons of causes. There's inputs and outputs. It's chaos. You're existing in chaos. I want you to be agile. I want to give you a positive experience with movement. So I have to do that to give you tangible hope and an achievable plan. And where am I going to start? The low-hanging fruit. Probably you're either doing too much too soon or you're doing too little too late. None of that has to do with correctives except of your programming. So it's not about mechanics as much as it is about parachute view programming. If you're doing too much too soon, we need to, to learn about rest periods and recovery and slow cooking and variability and optionality. So you're not overloading the same thing too much, especially if you lack track technical proficiency. If you're doing too little, I need to do everything in my power to reassure you and not make you a fragilista by saying one pelvis is high or your psoas is tight or you're not activating your core and you're breathing bad. Of course you're breathing bad. Duh. Everybody's breathing bad. Hello. <laughs> But it, it's not a big deal. It's like, it's like I'll put them into a high plank or beast crawl and, and I'll ask them to talk and they can't pass the talk test. And I'll say, are you holding your breath? They'll go, yeah. I go, just breathe. They go, oh, okay. And I go, that's the goal. I want you to be able to do this for 30 seconds and talk and talk and say, I'm breathing. I'm talking. So it's moving that's from- the first exercise. So it's moving from like the fix-it mentality to it sounds like variability- and resiliency. Yes. Resiliency before robustness. Mm. And technical proficiency isn't required until you get later into robustness. We're going to go back to rapid fire. This is from Lance. I'm so sorry. You're good. No, I love that. No, we digressed. This is from Lance Parker. Yeah. What were you going to say? I'm so glad you know Lance. Yeah. Oh, is he the greatest guy? He's the greatest. So I don't have, we can stop the podcast because all people have to do is just watch him, <laughs> listen to him, read him. And he's the, he's the role model. Let's just nickname <laughs> him right now. Lance, the role model, Parker. I love So it. his question, are you ready? Where's my this wife? So funny. More, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Top three book recommendations for coaches wanting to increase their overall impact with each of their clients. Mm. Which is very Lance. It's like, how can I be better? How can I do better? <laughs> Anything by Mike Boyle. Anything by Mark Verstegen. And Skin in the Game by Tlaib. Nice. All right. This one's from Melissa Paris, another strong first coach also in New York. 
book recommendations for individuals who don't have a coach but want to help them impact their health. So like a book recommendation for a gen pop person who can't work one-on-one for a co- with a coach. Anything by Rachel Cosgrove. John Berardi's new book, for sure. And The Story of the Human Body by Joseph Lieberman. Hmm. What does 2020 look like? I know you're teaching. My vision is blurry. <laughs> it's not 2020. <laughs> it's chaotic. So in 2020, <laughs> I'm 60. And my vision has gotten really blurry. And I'm really at ease with that. So, um, extremely comfortable with uncertainty. Levitt was teaching us this and everybody became a know-it-all. So Dr. Carol Levitt and Professor Yonda were my two great mentors and neurologists from Prague. And Dr. Levitt said, we work at the acceptable level of uncertainty. So this is the ultimate kind of Zen mind approach. And he furthermore wrote in a letter to Maria Perry, a Cairo in, in New York, in New York State, Maybe she's in Waterbury, Connecticut now. I'm not sure. He wrote to her and said, keep an open mind for new ideas that sometimes show what you thought or believed before was wrong. And I think this is how you exist in chaos. Plan B is plan A. So I'm a plan B guy. That's optionality. In fact, when I lay out the four principles of reassurance, reactivation, resilience, and then variability or optionality, really optionality is principle is principle one, really. Mm. You should always think outside the box because plan A is never going to work. There is no cookbook. There's no recipe. We're prisoners of protocols. So Dr. Levitt said, don't be a slave of methods. The method should serve the goals. And what goals? The patient's goals. So, so what are their demands? What are their concerns? What are their fears? What are their worries? And then we find out what their floor is. That's your first question about movement. Um, and it could be about diet or stress or other things too. And now we want to bridge the gap from what they have to what they need. So, so 2020, I think, is about getting people to be able to exist in chaos, getting people to take less of a fix-it mentality, to realize that the things they are doing are not the answer, and the things that they aren't doing would be a fertile area to get them out of the status quo vested interest traps that we all fall into. And then lastly, the really greatest ambassador of this is Carol Dweck, who wrote Mindset from Stanford. Yes. And the greatest spokeswoman for Carol Dweck is my good friend, who's now going to be in New York with the Yankees, Rachel Balkovec. And there is nobody more under the, the radar that has more to offer than Rachel. Rachel is the ultimate myth buster. She likes CrossFit. She does not like corrective exercises. She makes breathing and establishing a foundation from the the foot simple, not complicated. She does one thing from Carol Dweck that is so incredibly powerful. She showed it at Exos with me. She takes her athletes. She gives them a drill. It's social. So they're in a group. She gives them a drill that they will all fail in order to knit them together so they all have each other's back. Hey, it's okay, it's okay. And when they they develop what she calls failure tolerance, when you have failure tolerance, you're no longer a know-it-all. Now you're in the ideal frame of of mind to be a learn-it-all. 
So she gives them something she knows they'll fail. She creates an environment where it's safe to fail. They all have each other's back. So they learn community and they develop that culture. And then when they figure it out, when they problem solve it, she has these minor leaguers. She shows us these videos, these Dominican kids. They don't even speak English. They're more elated when they solve the Rubik's Cube than if they just won the effing World Series. <laughs> All because she gamified it and she cracked the code. Start with building failure tolerance by giving, some, giving people permission to fail and giving them something hard. So I give people a beast crawl. I show them a picture, a high plank. They all have like a down dog position. They can't balance the yoga block on their back. And it's cool. And then I show them that they're in a down dog in their high plank. And I don't say anything. I do this in China. Movement is a universal language. I show them the picture. They autocorrect. Immediately, they know they should be a plank. And then they feel great. So positive experience with movement. In 2020, I hope to share with people how easy it is to give people positive experience with movement and how impactful it can be for people because the gift of injury is that this is actually going to help people with healthy longevity and prevention of NCDs. It's not about musculoskeletal pain. Musculoskeletal pain and disability puts us, you and me and your audience, in this incredibly powerful place. We get to help people with all the NCDs, including mental health issues. That is like something I never anticipated. Amazing. Where can people find you? All over. All over. <laughs> I, I like social media. I hate it and I like it. So Instagram, Twitter, Twitter, if you want to learn who else you should follow. That, that's where you get updated on what's happening at a tendinopathy conference in Melbourne now or groin conference in Qatar. Science that isn't published yet that is pre-released there and see who I purvey and follow them. Facebook, First Principles of Movement on Facebook. You'll see our community, also my page. You can follow me on Instagram, follow Reload on Instagram, Ryan Chow. Follow Ryan Chow's stories. It's better than his, his regular Instagram, the feed. And my email, craigliebensondc at gmail.com. You can find it on my Instagram page, my LA Sports and Spine Facebook page and website. Those, and the First Principles of Movement website. Amazing. <laughs> Lots three. of platforms to manage and figure out. <laughs> no, it's, awesome. it's, I just, I love learning. Yeah. I love learning. And we're all... We're all on this journey together. The more, the merrier. That's how it started for me when I was a student was I learned stuff outside of my classroom, not in my classroom. And I had people feeding me stuff that was heretical. And, and I had an open mind. I'm a philosopher. So I question. I'm not a cynic. I'm a very positive person, but I love to learn. And, and I'm a rebel. So, so I like to challenge the status quo. It's just something that I have found in my life that the man is bad. I don't like the man. So School of Rock is like, you know, my son's favorite movie. And I love the motto of School of Rock. Don't trust the man. The vested interest in status quo. They took Michelle Obama from her mission. Come on, the most popular first lady, practically. How does she get stopped? Vested effing interest. The status quo bias makes people go into FMS and never leave. DNS and never leave. Backfit Pro and never leave. We need optionality. These are all great things. Learn them all. Learn them all. Awesome. Thank you so much. You're so sweet. <laughs> Thank you. That's a wrap. I have two truths that I fully believe in. First, to be 1% better every single day. And second, 
All feedback is good feedback because it helps us grow. Why do I say this? If you're enjoying these conversations and you find this is adding value, send us some love by subscribing to Muscle Medicine Podcast on iTunes. And if you want to share your voice with the world and scream it from the rooftops and tell your friends, or you can just give us a little feedback so we can grow by rating and reviewing Muscle Medicine on iTunes. Thank you guys so much gratitude. Dr. Emily Kybert here.